Hello, everyone, and welcome to Diversity Matters, where we explore all things diversity, equity, and inclusion related. I'm your host, Oscar Holmes IV, and I'm so excited to welcome my good friend, Dr. Ed Ng, to the guest chair today as we discuss the horrific rise in anti-Asian violence and bias and how people can be better allies. Ed is the James and Elizabeth Freeman Professor of Management at Bucknell University, and his research focuses on managing diversity for organizational competitiveness, the changing nature of work in organizations, and managing across generations. He has published four books and more than 90 peer-reviewed journal articles and monographs, and has been featured in popular media outlets in Canada and the U.S., such as the CBC, The Globe, and The Mail, The Financial Post, ABC News, CBS News, and NPR. He is the Editor-in-Chief of Equality, Diversity, and Inclusion, an international journal, and the Program Chair for the Gender and Diversity in Organizations Division of the Academy of Management. Dr. Ed Ng, welcome to Diversity Matters. Thanks so much for having me, Oscar. It is a great pleasure to be here with you. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. Looking for an affordable and efficient way to create your next podcast, live stream, or promotional video? Introducing the studio at Carney Point, catering to creators, marketers, corporate, and educational brands alike. Our state-of-the-art studio provides the flexibility you need to produce the creative content your audience is looking for. Our friendly and knowledgeable staff will handle the technical details, keeping you free to focus on what matters most creating the best possible media for your audience. Click the banner now for a free consultation. So Diversity Matters listeners know that in my last episode, which was the season two premiere, I spoke with Dr. Laura Wong about her new book, Edge, but also about the rise of anti-Asian violence. This topic is so important, I knew I wanted to dedicate more time and space to discuss this topic. And Ed, I knew you were the perfect person to offer another valuable perspective. We've been great friends for such a long time, and I not only appreciate your friendship, but I also appreciate your activism and allyship. So I'm looking forward to learning from you in this conversation. So Ed, let's get started. So before we get into our discussion about allyship, what can you tell our listeners about who you are that they wouldn't necessarily get from reading a bio? Oh, Oscar, it's such a pleasure to be here. So thanks for having me. And I, I'm happy to share a little bit about my own experiences uh, and also tell your listeners who I am and the perspective that I bring, you know, on all those really critical issues, you know, in the moment. I'm an Asian immigrant. As you know, my parents immigrated to Canada and settled in Vancouver. I didn't move to the U.S. for work. So that makes me an Asian immigrant in both countries. In addition, I also identify as a member of the LGBTQ plus community. I have a partner of almost 23 years. So I do have multiple identities and they become salient in different contexts. As you know, Canada and US are very different. So uh, a lot of my racial identities do come out depending on the context and it's becoming increasingly more important, you know, given what we have in the recent, the incidents in the recent past. Great. So... You know, I've been really moved and inspired by a lot of the activism you've done throughout the years that I've seen you participate in, as well as how you've been just a great ally to multiple communities. So what does being an ally mean to you and why is it so important? Oh, thanks for asking that question, Oscar, because we know right now there are a lot of folks, friends, colleagues 
who have this racial reckoning and, you know, they all partake in allyship, wanting to help. So to me, allyship has three parts, right? First, of course, is taking on personal responsibility to help someone or a group of individuals who experience systemic discrimination so that they can be treated fairly and equitably, just like everybody else, just like you and I. Allyship also has to be out of your personal volition, kind of like OCD or organizational citizenship behavior for those of us who are in the OBHR area. It has to be voluntary, not a work assignment or not imposed on us externally. You need to have no expectation of reciprocity or return. Otherwise, it becomes conditional allyship, and that really bothers me. And the third part, of course, allyship must also have good intent, right? People often need to find meaning and purpose in their lives. So some people make allyship a hobby or they do it for egoistic purposes. Allyship means you engage in certain acts, but you also make sacrifices. It means giving time, giving up or sharing power or resources. It's not something you do to elevate yourself or to make you feel good. Or until you find the next cause you deem visible or worthy of your attention. This is why we never have sustained efforts, especially in combating racial injustice, right? Allyship really means showing up and standing alongside someone who has been mistreated, oppressed, and are vulnerable. It's important to me personally because I hope that my allyship can help raise awareness about mistreatment. Because I have lived experiences, it also provides comfort in some way, in a small way, helps make it better for others. I really hope my allyship can help someone feel desired as a colleague and a friend. I want to make them feel worthy, worthy of all the things that I've been fortunate to enjoy and have access to, like education, economic opportunities, and a happy life. So that's what allyship means to me. That's great. So, you know, some people in in many communities talk about the word allyship itself and how, you know, that's something people shouldn't even call themselves. We shouldn't use the term allyship or it shouldn't be, you know, self-bestowed on someone. Uh, where do you fall in that debate about, you know, whether it's an appropriate term to call oneself an ally? I think ally is both a noun as well as, you know, a verb like an action, right? So to me, if you consider yourself an ally, then it has to meet the three things I mentioned earlier. Good intent, personal volition, and you take personal responsibility. That, to me, are the hallmarks or criteria for being an ally in my book. But of course, somebody might consider you to be an ally in the sense that they have seen you support them, make sacrifices, make time. It's funny because I'm Canadian, right? So my prime minister has always called himself a feminist, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. In that sense, I don't consider myself a feminist, but an ally of feminism because I would do things to be supportive of gender equity. Uh, Likewise, I don't consider myself as much an ally until I feel that I have done enough to make the changes necessary, right? So I sort of feel that it's it's something that people take on very easily. It's probably overused by media, but certainly there are qualifications to be an ally. You can't simply go out there and call yourself an ally just simply because you posted something on social media. That to me is sort of surface level type of allyship. 
Excellent. I, I totally agree. And as you know, I've, I've written about performative allyship, and then we can definitely talk about that later. But let's talk about, you mentioned several already, but if you want to kind of delineate it even more for our listeners, you know, what would some skills or some qualities would a person need to be an effective ally? That's a really good question. Thanks for raising that. I mean, there are really no qualifications or skills you need to be an ally, right? Anybody can be an ally as long as you have good intent. But I feel that there are certain qualities or attributes or values that one should have in order to be a good ally. So really, I just spoke about responsibility, volition, and intent. But uh, beyond that, I think there are a few things that allies should be aware of. It's more of an introspection or a value that you should espouse. So the first thing to me is acknowledgement of unearned privilege. This to me is critical. So many people are really uncomfortable doing that, even allies, right? I'll explain this later on with an example. But without acknowledging that you have unearned privilege, you cannot claim or fully claim to understand the hardships others face. Sure, you may have endured life's challenges, but others do too. I get that you're raised in a single family or single parent household. You had newspaper roots and you worked through college to put yourself through. But when you knock on doors, doors open for you. Right, not so much for racialized groups. So, if you're unwilling to acknowledge the unprivileged that you have, then you're essentially saying that there's nothing wrong with a status quo. You are, in fact, denying systemic racism or the systemic discrimination. So, to me, that is a an important prerequisite to being a good ally, to be an effective ally. Right. So, one of the reasons why diversity efforts keep failing is because we fail to recognize and acknowledge unearned privilege despite the number of allies that we see or hear out there. So here's the example I want to give you. So I always hear a white colleague say she worked hard at every conversation we had, right? And that she doesn't know any other way to do it other than working hard. I'm not taking that away from her. I know she does. I'm sure she didn't have it easy. But think of how much harder marginalized groups Mm -hmm. have to work and the challenges they have to overcome to get to where she is. They work hard too, but when they knock, there was no answer, right? So that to me is recognizing that you have unearned privilege despite working hard. So let me just say this. I think it's really important for the audience to hear. So despite my minority group status as an Asian immigrant living in the U.S. right now, I acknowledge some of the privileges that accrue to me due to racial stereotypes. I mean, you know, Asians are good at math. They are good at academics. They work hard. They are law-abiding. So some people see me or view me as white adjacent or near white. The funny thing, of course, is no one ever questioned whether I went to Harvard. When all I did was wore a souvenir shirt, I did not go, right? But nobody asked, did you attend Harvard? No one followed me around the store. Did I work hard? Sure, I did. But I also acknowledge that it's easier for me than a lot of my Black colleagues and Latino or Latinx colleagues. So you must confront and acknowledge that you have unearned privilege before you can claim to be an ally. I think that's really important to truly have empathy for others. I mean, it's also important to have cultural humility. We need to be aware of our own culture in order to understand the biases we form when interacting with others. I mean, this requires us to know and have historical awareness and an understanding of the historical disadvantages that minority groups have experienced, right? Now, I want to add that you don't have to feel guilty either. 
because you have unearned privilege. It doesn't change the fact that some people have privileges and some people don't. What you do with the privilege or unearned privilege you have, it's what matters the most, right? You can either choose to share the privilege that you have or to make that privilege work, make it better for others. That to me is really critical. So some of the qualities that you attribute to, I think it's really, you know, it comes from within the values that you espouse and how willing you are to acknowledge that unearned privilege and to make it work for others. Wow. So, Ed, you have given us so many gems, and I just want to slowly unpack them if we can. Right. The first one was when you said, you know, allyship is a noun and a verb. I really like that framing because it's similar to Eburn X. Kendi's framing of being an anti-racist, right? You can mm-hmm. do something that's racist in one moment and then do something that's anti-racist in another moment. Like it's it's not an all or nothing type of dichotomy, right? It's a continuum of experiences, behaviors, actions that people engage in. So people shouldn't just be comfortable standing this identity of being an ally, but need to recognize that it's a continuum of actions. And we're constantly, as I said in last episode, like Michelle Obama said, we're becoming, you know, we all have blind spots. We're, we're trying to get better every day and practicing these types of behaviors and actions to be supportive of other groups. The other amazing nugget in that was just the talk about unearned privileges, because just like you, I have a lot of marginalized intersectional identities being a Black gay man as well. But being a man, I recognize because of patriarchy, right? Uh, there's so many benefits and honor privileges that I have just being a cis, you know, cis male. So it's important for our listeners to realize that we all have intersections of identities. And, and I just love how you just frame your answer. And I just wanted to just highlight that because there were so many nuggets in that answer. And I think it's really helpful for people to to hear someone talk about their own unearned privileges but also their other marginalized identities because they intersect in some really important ways that really have some huge impact on the lived experiences that we all have. So beyond performative allyship, and if if you want to talk further about performative allyship, you certainly can, but what are some other challenges or mistakes that you've seen others make when they try to be an effective ally? And then I'm going to ask you later about your own mistakes. But for right now, let's talk about what are some things that you've seen others make. Right. Hey, Oscar, I want to circle back to your comment there about being an ally. I think it it boils down to intent, right? It's your intentions about being an ally that's more important. And I'm going to kind of build on this when you ask about, you know, performative allyship and the challenges and how to be an effective ally. So I think it's really important for us to distinguish between intent and impact. So many people think that they are allies simply by engaging in intentional acts to show support. I signed a petition online. I posted about Black Lives Matter on social media. I attended an anti-racist rally. Sure, that is nice, right? It can help raise visibility. It can marshal greater support because others might follow suit. It can also lead others into thinking that Blacks or Asians or LGBTQ plus communities are getting too much attention and that elicits backlash as well, right? So people get tired of listening to these messages repeatedly. 
So think of what you can personally do instead to make a meaningful change or to support marginalized groups, right? So for me, the impact is actually more important than intent when you want to be an effective ally. If you just want to sort of display allyship, that is performative act of allyship, right? So this takes me to my next point. So being an ally requires personal sacrifice, not something we do out of ego or makes us feel good because we stood up for someone or something, but rather we are willing to do it. We are willing to give up in order to support someone else. So I have seen too many what I call professional allies out there who are engaged in this performative acts of allyship, right? They come off as virtuous and moral. They sort of hang out in circles that denounce racism, but all they're doing is to absolve themselves of their own racist acts. You mentioned that earlier. In one moment, they can sort of, you know, be racist. And in another moment, they could come off as defending, calling for social, uh, racial justice and defending, you know, the the need to dismantle racism, right? This professional allies, as, as I call them, you know, when you ask them to share resources or power, they will immediately restore the status quo. So you truly know who is an ally in name versus a true ally who is willing to sort of make that sacrifice. Um, I'll give you an example. We hear a lot of arguments, you know, right now about cohort-based hirings of underrepresented minority groups in predominantly white academic institutions. I hear arguments on both sides, and I hear a lot of resistance. We have white allies out there constantly voicing moral outrage, right, over racial injustice when, you know, about the George Floyd murder. We recently had a candlelight vigil on campus for the, the murders in Atlanta. But when they were asked to hire a group of underrepresented groups, you will hear the resistance and how it takes away from shared governance. Guess what? Governance that are vested or bestowed on them, right? So they are not willing to give up governance or share resources or power because these professional allies want to have a say on whom they want as colleagues. They only want colleagues who will fit in. And guess what? They end up just reproducing themselves. Right. So all this public acts of allyship to reaffirm commitment to racial justice is nothing more than a way to establish moral credentials to act in really selfish ways. Like I say, intent is really important here. Another mistake that I see allies make, especially white allies, is to speak over marginalized groups. Instead of listening, they are just waiting to speak. I see this at every DI meeting that I chair. You know, they invest enormous amounts of time and effort befriending minority colleagues, mentoring minority students, and repeating the messages from minorities and then taking credit for those things, right? They are just reinforcing white supremacy at the DI table, just simply faking good. So these acts are actually more harmful than helpful. So have some humility and listen. White women are often the first volunteers at DI committees. They stand up as allies. They do this because they feel that as women, they understand marginalized experiences. And I'm not taking that away from them. But I've had students of color complaining about how they are being excluded and having their lived experiences invalidated by white women. They're essentially asked to defend the experiences of discrimination and to relive their traumas, right? So gender discrimination is not the only DEI issue. And they're not the same as racial discrimination. So... That is another area that I constantly see where allies actually take over the conversation and completely ignore 
or invalidate the other groups. I also mentioned this earlier about conditional allyship. Allyship does not mean reciprocity. I see this happen with some groups. We will support you and in turn expect you to support our cause and struggles. This is purely instrumental. There's really nothing at stake for the allies. I mean, these allyships are very much surface level. They are really just very weak. Again, that is, you know, a poor allyship. So you have just spoken a word there. I think I want to pass a collection plate because you have given us a lot in that. You brought up the Atlanta shootings, and I do want to get to that. But before we leave our conversation about allyship, I do think it's important to give people a look on both sides of, you know, tell us about a time where you've been your best at being an ally, but also sometimes where you've fallen short as well and you wished you could be a better ally to a person or a group of people. And what kept you from being a better ally at that particular moment? Hmm. This is a tough one, Oscar. I think this occurred last year when someone accused me of using my positional power to provide voice to a group of scholars for a community who experienced intense trauma. So after the George Floyd murder, you know, the Black community, they're heartbroken, right? So what I did was simply provide space to my Black scholar colleagues to express themselves and the grief that they have experienced. I wanted to learn how we can help from their perspective, not from what white allies think they need. So I invited for essays from Black management scholars, yourself included. Thank you for doing that, Oscar. I know it was a very difficult time uh, and circumstance to write. And I simply want you know, them to write what they feel is important what's critical to them personally and professionally, and what needs to be done to fix a broken system. It didn't sit well with some. I've had one reviewer who wrote to me. The reviewer read one of the articles and said, can you please tell the author to tone it down so we don't offend the white readers of the journal? I actually saved that email. My response back was, If I offended someone, then I think I have done my job. I want to circle back to your earlier question on this. I think an ally is someone who has the capacity to effect change or maybe be a catalyst. This means allies who have access to power or who have power, influence, and resources should lead the charge. We can march up and down the street every day to demand change, and we likely won't move the needle much or at all. It takes someone with power and influence, in other words, leaders, to do something that can make things better for others, right? So we need more allies and leaders. That, to me, is critical. You also ask about the time that I was, that kept me away from being a better ally. And why was that the case? I think this one is easy because I remember it well. I can't say I'm proud of it. So this was a long time ago. I was deplaning or getting off a plane. And an elderly Asian woman who did not speak English asked me a question. I think she was trying to find out where she should go next for her next flight. I pretended I did not understand or speak Chinese to avoid helping her. Obviously, she was confused. She did not speak English. And she saw me as a familiar face since we share the same ethnic origin. 
it was a horrible act. I'm very ashamed of it. Really ashamed for not helping her. It was during a time when it's socially acceptable to speak English only in public. That is sort of there's a lot of pressure to conform, especially many immigrants. Immigrants of Asian descent would have this experience, feeling ashamed to display their heritage in public. It's like you don't want to bring your favorite snack or lunch to school because you know you will be ridiculed. I don't know if um, you know any of the listeners might have this experience. So I felt horrible reflecting on this experience, and now I make it a point to help anyone who asks for assistance in whatever language they speak, even if I have to miss my flight. Since that, I actually almost did once at Pearson at Toronto Airport. I was at my gate, and there was an elderly Punjabi couple that walked up to me, and they showed me their boarding passes and asked me where to go. I insisted on walking them to their gate. You know, so when I walked back to my gate, I was the last one to board my flight. So, but I felt it was worth it, even if I did, because it's a way for me to make up for what I did to that Asian woman that I did not help. Wow, thank you so much, Ed, for sharing that. I'm sure that will be really impactful to our listeners, and and many of them, including myself. See myself in that story because there are plenty of times where I've also have fallen short and, and felt really bad about myself for falling falling short. And so, thank you for just your vulnerability and your transparency in that moment because these, again, are the stories that people need to hear in order to know that you know it's not a one hundred percent on your game all the time. No matter who you are, we as scholars of this topic, right? We still have shortcomings. We still make mistakes. We still have blind spots. So it's important for everyone to to recognize that again. This is all about becoming constantly becoming a, a better person. So I really appreciate that, and that was really impactful for me to hear your story. And I also want to say thank you, uh, a huge thank you. I've said thank you a lot, but I want to publicly and go on the record and say thank you so much for everything that you've done um, at EDI Journal. EDI has always had some great editors, but you stand among the top, in, in my opinion, of people really ushering the journal forward and, and making a huge impact in not only a scholarly way, but a societal way as well. And, you know, when you asked me to write about police brutality for the special issue, I was one, honored that you asked, but I realized I had to reflect. There was a lot of things I wanted to say, but I, I did have to reflect on the trauma of the moment and what it felt for me to put those words on paper and put it out there in a way that I think would be, of course, meet, quote unquote, the rigors of scholarship, right, for the community, mm -hmm. but also make an impact. And I will say, I am so thankful for the research publications I have, you know, what we would call in our field, top tier publications I and mean, my co-authors on those papers. And so, you know, not taking anything away from that, I'm grateful. But to date, that article on police brutality and for all the ways racism kills black people, to me, that's my most significant piece of work. And it may be, be the most significant piece of work that I've ever written or I will ever write in this field. And I'm so proud of that work. And it has 
been, you know, of course, turned into a talk. I mean, many people have invited me to other places to give a talk based on their work. And I've seen it move so many people. And when I've, after I've given the talk, you know, some people have been in tears while I was giving the talk. People have asked to read the article, right, and requested it. And it's been sent out in, to many places, right, on people's own volition. They heard the, about the title, so they sent it out. And so I just want to, again, publicly thank you for the opportunity because it wasn't a piece that, like, I wanted to write. Like, you know, it was in my queue to write. It was literally your reaching out asking, can I write something about this moment? And, and it was just a natural upspring of words coming, flowing from me, you know, onto the screen, computer screen. And I'm really proud of that work. So thank you for that opportunity. Oscar, I'm trying to hold myself together um, hearing you speak. It means a lot to me to hear this. It's really gratifying. I do want to apologize as I reach out to yourself and, you know, our many colleagues and friends. I know timing wasn't really great, but I wanted to seize the moment. And in doing so, I may have caused more grief. And I know it was particularly painful because of, you know, the responses that I have received for so many of you to have to revisit that. But thank you for doing that. And I think it's really important to get the message out there. And I'm glad to hear you spreading that message. Thank you. No, thank you. Ed. No, the pleasure is, is definitely mine. And and I have gotten so much from all of the other articles in that issue as well. I mean, the, the stories that, you know, many of our friends, they are friends of ours share in that issue is just so impactful and was just so moving. And I remember reading many of the stories and, and being in tears of the stories because they were a lot of my stories as well uh, you know one coming to mind like patrick's story patrick mckay's story of, mm-hmm. of you know you were just on top of the world but you still you're not there <laughs> like you have all the professional mm-hmm. success but your personal life right because of the environment that you find yourself in you know Myrtle bell's articles and stuff so much just so many that really really moved me to tears and i think that is just an impactful issue one of the most impactful issues of any journal <laughs> that i read so again Thank you. Thank you so much. So want to go back to the Atlanta shootings. And as I shared with Laura on her episode of how, you know, how that experience really, it felt similar like the Orlando shootings, right? The Pulse nightclub shootings of how I felt of just getting the air sucked out of you. And I just want to give you space to talk about, you know, what that has meant to you your experiences with that and and any way that you feel appropriate to memorialize, right, these victims of these horrible shootings. How does all this affect you? Hmm. Uh, When I first heard of the Atlanta shootings or, you know, previously other acts of violence, especially involving police or terrorists, I think about the hurt and trauma that they inflict on the community. I, I think of the victims and the terror they experienced. And for some, their final moments, I think for the victims' families, how do they recover from this? Because it doesn't make sense to them, right? The Atlanta shootings leave right. me shaken since it hits close to home. It's a community that I identify with. Mm-hmm. You know, I think of systemic racism and so much hate out there towards a group simply because of misinformation. 
I watched many of the clips on the news about how Asians are harassed, beaten in public, and no one comes to their aid. It's horrifying to watch. And in some ways, I feel really helpless being a member of the community. So those were some of the immediate sort of reactions I had. It lingers. And of course, as the you know days and weeks pass, it has gotten worse. You know, students on campus, uh, my parents. So it has been difficult. And thank you for providing space to sort of, to discuss the anti-Asian hate in your podcast. I mean, both with Laura last week and, and with myself. No, it's, it's the least I can do. So no thanks needed on your end at all. So your parents, uh, are they in Canada still? They are. They are in Vancouver. And even though Canada sometimes thinks that it's a more enlightened country, unfortunately, the number of incidents reported on Asian violence or harassment, it's on par with the U.S. and elsewhere around the world. Wow. Okay. That's, I was curious to know. Like, I thought they were still in Canada and, and I wanted to juxtapose Canada and the U.S. to see if there was a difference, but to hear that they're basically on par, the rise of anti-Asian violence is on par is really disheartening. I, we had more expectations for Canada, right? <laughs> uh, I think the world does as well, but no, unfortunately, uh, when it comes to hate, um, it's equal opportunity, I should say. Yeah, unfortunately. So, you know, I want to, again, center you in the moment because I know how I feel, you know, anytime I am around police officers, you know, I don't feel safe. Luckily, I've never had a horrific police encounter, but still the collective trauma, right, that I live with uh, is not a feeling of safety that I have. So, you know, for you personally, have you experienced any increase in bias or violence? And if you haven't, thankful, I'm thankful if you haven't, but, you know, how does the possibility linger for you and how you go about this world? Mm, thanks for asking that question, Oscar. It's, it's, I know the questions are sort of concern. Fortunately, because I'm in central PA, it's a very small community. I have not personally experienced any violence directed at me. But, you know, my parents live in Vancouver. They have. I have Asian students who are fearful on campus. They don't want to go off campus. My parents are just as fearful. They only leave the front door when they absolutely need to. This makes them feel isolated and lonely. You layer on the pandemic, you know, they need to actually have any sort of interaction or just being able to go out to get some fresh air. And now with having to be on guard all the time when you're out, they feel very isolated and lonely. So this has affected their mental health and, and their overall well-being, right? They worry about the stairs when they go out. They are frightened to death when they cough in public. Not because of COVID, but, you know, the association mm -hmm. with COVID. So all these things add to my own stress because I do worry about right. my parents as well as those of my students. So this has become right. an increased level of stress that is layered on by the pandemic itself, right? Uh, the requirements to, you know, to stay home. Right. Your example made me remember a piece 
that one of my students shared with me, I'm not a piece, but it was an email of how disappointed, and he's of Asian descent, but how disappointed he was and how surprised he was at how quickly his roommates, because he lived on campus, like they turned against him. And he shared how he fell into a depression because of this. And you know, he started having difficulty with his work. And I noticed that there was a difference in the quality of the work that he turned in. So I immediately pointed him to the services that we have on campus and really gave him the space to share his feelings, but also responded in a way to let him know I understood racism. And, and I really, you know, empathize with him in that situation and, you know, gave him the time that he needed. And so that he can, you know, get the grade that he deserved in the class, notwithstanding the stress that he was under at that point. But I'm fortunate that he felt safe and comfortable to share his experience with me so that I can intervene in a way that would positively benefit him. But it's awful to hear all of these stories from students on these campuses. And, and as you mentioned, the pandemic kind of exacerbated the, the loneliness people can feel and isolation that people can feel that that really is detrimental to their mental health. So as professors, you and I are both professors and, and the power that we have, I think a message is for us as professors to also do our part and to treat our students with the care that they need, particularly targeted care that they need, because they are under enormous stress and you know, I often hear professors talk about, well, if I do something for this, it's unfair for me to do something, you know, for one student and not for other students. And it's like, no, 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 like that's equality ideology, right? Like treat everyone the same. We're not the same. You know, equity is about being fair. What can you do to be fair to students, right? And if you can provide a legitimate justification for why you did something, then that's all you need to cover your tracks, right? So the idea is about mm -hmm. fairness. And some students are experiencing different things right now. They're under different stresses right now. So what can you do to be fair to those students? Your comment just brought that back to my mind. And I just wanted to share that with our listeners as well. Well, the fact that you actually checked on your friend means, you know, a lot. If everybody was just to check on one friend and the person actually knows that somebody cares, it's really comforting, right? So thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. So I prefer centering, you know, victims instead of the terrorist. So instead of like a message to what you want to say to the white supremacists or the terrorists out there, you know, what would be some messages you want to send to the AAPI communities at this moment? And, you know, what would some of your messages be to our local, state and national governments? I just want to kind of share with your listeners what you just said, you know, about how you reached out. So... I think that's really important. So one of the things I did after the shootings was to send an email to all the students in my college. My message was really simple, that I was available to speak to anyone that day, the next day, the next week, and so on. A few students responded. I actually have African-American students that wrote me, but I wanted them to know that they can turn to someone, even if all they needed was somebody to talk to. So if you're terrified, you want to know that you can find help, you can get help and you will be helped and that you're not alone. I think the government needs to acknowledge racially motivated violence and call it hate crime. It is really not up to the terrorists to decide whether it's racially motivated or not, right? Absolutely. You know, if you linger, this, this can create doubts over 
whether authorities or police can be relied on to protect vulnerable communities. The government also needs to come up with an anti-racism strategy to educate and prevent race-based violence and harassment. I mean, the reality is when police is involved, it is simply too late. We really need to craft a better narrative on the contributions of all Americans and how we built the country together, make it stronger mm-hmm. and more prosperous. We need to dismantle the model minority notion. It's really crafted by putting Asians on the pedestal to avoid having to remove mm-hmm. barriers that enable the success of, say, Blacks or other minority groups, right? I'm really tired of the constant politicized politicization, I can never say that word, of refugees and migrants or immigrants. You know, they often cast them as problematic, which makes them forever foreign. And it contributes to all this race-based hate. Political leaders need to do better, not demonizing one group as more or less desirable as citizens for personal electoral gains. At the moment, there is a lot of conflation over Asian Americans, Chinese Americans, Asians in America, and the Chinese government itself. As you, you and I both know, I mean, Asian Americans report, you know, unprecedented levels of microaggressions right now, right? Anything from, you know, simple racist jokes all the way to, to assault. This has to stop. We need an anti-racism strategy, period. Totally agree. And I hope there are many people in our local, state, and national governments who may listen to this podcast and, and who can enact the appropriate policies so that we can develop an anti-racist strategy. Because it's fundamental, like you said, you know, when the police are involved in these crimes, the crimes have already been committed. So it's it's really too late at that point. We need to have practices in place that will prevent these crimes of violence and bias from even happening from the start. You know, as we close this episode, do you have any organizations that you want to share with listeners to that are working in this space to with the AAPI communities or any books or online tools, anything like that, that you want to share with people that if they, you know, want to help out, they can point them into a good direction? Oscar, can I share another story with your listeners? Absolutely. I want to share an experience in the past week on campus where we had a candlelight vigil. So shortly after the Atlanta shootings, a really close friend, Cedric, uh, he lives in Chicago. He immediately texted me to let me know that he stands in solidarity with me. Shortly after, another colleague on campus, Simone, reached out, sent me an email to ask if there was anything I needed and she asked how she could help. What's really astonishing here is both are African-Americans, not white, not Anglo-Americans, but Black Americans. There was not a single white or Anglo person that reached out to me until it was prompted. This is striking because the experience I just had goes in the face of the historic Asian-Black tension in the U.S. And I think we need to emphasize this or highlight this we need allies who can help raise visibility you know on any form of injustices right compared to the civil rights movement the current black lives movement draw 
supporters from across different racial and ethnic lines. I am really encouraged to see this because it's the broad-based support against racial discrimination that is important, critical, and would have the momentum to, to sort of make things better. I want to emphasize that Asian Americans actually have more in common than, with African Americans than with whites. So it was particularly heartwarming to see both communities show up for both Black lives and anti-Asian violence. I want to really turn this race reckoning moment into an opportunity for, for Asian and Black communities to come together and stand in solidarity. As they say, an attack on one is an attack on all. So what can people do? When you hear about a racial joke about you know things like the Kung flu or China virus, immediately interrupt it. Explain why it's inappropriate and how it contributes to misinformation. Don't act like you didn't see it or hear it. It's actually worst, especially when you're there. Even if it's presented as a joke, it is hurtful. Doing nothing simply reinforces stereotypes and perpetuates the misinformation and, and harassment rate. You ask about you know groups out there that you can support or join. There are a lot of anti-Asian hate or violence support groups. You know, I'll just highlight three for the listeners that I think are doing great work out there. I'm not sort of privileging one organization over another. They just happen to be the ones that I'm aware of that have been doing excellent advocacy, awareness, as well as support. So Asian Americans Advancing Justice, that's one group. The National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, that's not a really good group as well. And the Center for Pan-Asian Community Services. If you haven't done so, you might want to follow the Stop AAPI Hate Twitter account just to keep track, follow up, and see how you could be supportive as well. I do know a lot of people who succumb to the bystander effect. Don't wait for others to jump in. In my role as DI faculty fellow on campus, many colleagues have you know, often come up and say to me, they've seen something, they've heard something, they want to do something, but they don't know how or are uncomfortable doing so. Daryl Su Wing, who is actually a professor at Columbia, many of your listeners would be familiar with his work or may not have heard of him. He's got a good book out there, Microaggressions in Everyday Life. He recently gave a webinar. That's a really good book to, to read. It offers solutions on interrupting micro, microaggressions, things that we can, all of us could do. His previous book, I think it's a bit older, around 19, sorry, 2016, on race talk and the conspiracy of silence also offers a lot of practical tools or help in having race conversations. I, I encourage you know the listeners to actually check out this these two titles. Thank you so much, Ed. I really appreciate this conversation with you. I have experienced such a range of emotions throughout this conversation. I really appreciate your joining us in the guest chair today. You've given our listeners some great advice on how to be a better ally and we stand in solidarity with you in the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. I wish you continued success and all of your future endeavors. Thank you. Thank you very much, Oscar. It's a privilege to, to have you as a friend. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Diversity Matters. If you enjoyed our show and want to hear more, 
please subscribe to our show, post, talk about, and reshare our show with all of your friends and family. And leave us a favorable review and rating so that we'll make it easier for others to find us wherever they listen to podcasts. We cannot do this important work or keep it going without you. So we really appreciate your support. We especially like to thank our episode sponsor, CO Power LLC, and the studio at Kearney Point. The studio at Kearney Point is a state-of-the-art facility to handle all of your recording and production needs. For more information, please visit their website at www.kearneypoint.studio. If you or your company would like to sponsor a Diversity Matters episode, please visit the podcast section of our website at www.whconsultingfirm.com for more information. Diversity Matters is produced by WH Consulting, a firm that provides a wide range of management and consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. Original music produced by Sincere Morton Murray. Until next time, peace and love. Thank you.